writing collaboration between Daniel Garner and his wife, Michelle Opperman. In collision with their grandmother's name, Rose, they offer a prolific output, including books, essays, and a podcast on their YouTube channel. I am at the liberty today of talking to Daniel Garner to discuss the opening chapter of their book, Conflict of Mind, Major Epistemological Problems. Hello, Daniel, how are we doing? Samuel, I'm doing great. Uh, thank you so much for making the time. Yeah, so like I said, we're sort of zooming in onto the first chapter of this book, but um, I think it might be good if we sort of just gave a, a wider overview on what Conflict of Mind is as a book and how that fits into your wider writing project, if you can possibly. Oh, well, thank you, Samuel. I, I appreciate it. Um, well, the conflict of mine, you know, I, I do a lot of work in literature, so I really enjoy paradox, irony, contradiction, all of these different tensions. And I've been very interested with the question of are there certain essential limits, not just accidental, but essential limits to rationality itself, uh, to how the mind operates? And what do those look like? Um, and this is really quite important because let's say, for example, you go, oh, well, democracy is the best uh, political system. Well, your view of how democracy works becomes a lot simpler if you can just assume that rationality does not entail any essential limits or essential problems, because then the name of the game is just to make sure that everyone's rational, right? Just make sure that everyone is educated and things like that. But if, for example, there are certain problems of rationality, like, for example, alluding to this first piece, truth organizes values. In order to determine what value am I in exercising, I need to determine the truth. But the truth might be quite difficult to determine. And in some situations, it might be impossible to determine. And if that is the case, then rationality could not figure out what value it is exercising. And what I mean by that is, let's say, you know, the mother, a mother is talking to her son and, the, and she asks, where's your sister? And the son says, she's upstairs. Well, let's say the sister isn't upstairs, right? Well, then the son is lying. Well, let's say the sister is upstairs. Well, then the son is telling the truth right? He's not lying. He's being honest. So to determine if the son is being honest or lying, it is completely contingent on the truth, what is actually the case. And then, of course, it could be the case that the sister was upstairs and then she moved to the other room. So from the kid's framework, he's telling the truth, but then the mom goes upstairs and it turns out he's not there. So it seems like it's lying, but it actually isn't. And so how do we determine what value is being exercised if honesty is being exercised? Well, we'd have to determine the truth. But of course, alluding to that example, the truth might not be stable. She might be in the room and she might switch to another room, right? And so then retrospectively, it's going to make it look like that it was a lie that was being exercised when in fact, relative to the kid's framework, it was in fact honesty that was being exercised. So there's this very complicated relationship between truth and value that the truth organizes value. And in order to determine if we are say defending freedom, defending equality, defending um, human rights, def et cetera, et cetera, you know, stopping terrorism, we can go on and on and on. Um, it is utterly paramount that we determine the truth because otherwise we could think that we're stopping terrorism as we make it worse. We could think that we're enabling freedom as in fact, we're limiting freedom. And so you could have these ironies and different paradoxes. So it becomes really critical to determine truth but as the next paper, so then it will build like the next paper section in the book is called Uncertainty and how certainty is impossible. Well, you know, we can get confidence, but we can't get certainty. Oh, well, that's terrible then, because then that means the ground that organizes our values is, is unstable, right? So how do we, how we deal with that? And then there are papers on the internet. 
Then uh, there's papers on, it's kind of funny because I, I wrote the conflict of mind, the title paper in um, 2016, when people thought that uh, Donald Trump was working for Russia. And the question was, how do you as a voter decide what you should think in that situation? It almost would have been better with COVID because you got so much insanity, you know, all this confusion and distrust and then all these different situations. The COVID situation, although I would, uh, you know, that's a big topic, is actually a really good example of the conflict of mind that people face because you know, the scientists are saying that we need to do this, but then they also work for big pharma so people don't trust them. But it's also it's also erroneous to assume that everything big pharma does is evil or that it's wrong, even if they have an opioid crisis. Right. So you have this question of how do you determine the truth? And then the next level of this is in term to determine the truth. You're actually reliant on the very authorities. You know, you need actually the scientists who are the authorities to tell you what's true. And yet you have reason to question them. And yet you really shouldn't even have reason to question them unless you're an authority. So I, you know, one of the papers is about in a, in a future work is called the authority circle, which I link up with the hermeneutic circle, like Heidegger or Gadamer, people talk about, like, how do you enter the text? Well, we really have this dilemma where you're, you require authorities to figure out the truth of these complicated issues. And yet, how do you enter into that circle? Because there is reason to think that authorities could manipulate you or that they may not trust you. And it becomes this very we're facing an age. So then like the overall project will then get into all of these examples of how we are just very uh, we are uniquely existentially unstable today. We are uniquely existentially because of globalization, because of neoliberalism, because of these bigger and bigger systems that are going on that make it more and more difficult to determine truth on a one-to-one, like on a ground level where you're relying more and more on bigger systems that you can't fully access. And how, unfortunately, when faced with that level of existential anxiety, things like totalitarianism become appealing, things like fascism become appealing, things like complete isolationism become appealing. And so the questions of the conflict of mind will then feed into a political question, which then will actually get into questions of art. And then it will also get, uh, the next book is called Reconstructing ASA, which is what is the very ontological character of human beings to make all of these situations possible. So that's all quite general. That's a bunch of different different subjects. But you know, to, to focus on the truth organizes value, it, it's this dilemma that truth organizes values, but we can't always tell what the truth is. And ultimately, can't, we can't even be certain. We can only be confident. So how do, how do we live with that reality? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it ties into, I, I think this is kind of how I understood the problem that you were approaching in Conflict of Mind was that there's a certain aptness about the arrogance in modernity in regards to epistemology, right? Because mm. almost when we look back to certain epistemological philosophies, whether that's um, antiquity or, you know, even up to Enlightenment times and that sort of thing, they're sort of seen as um, antiques, like th- this is the way these silly people used to look at epistemology. And now we have rationalism and the Enlightenment yeah. or, you know, empirical science and all these sorts of things. And it, it seems that, you know, we look at stuff like theology or um, certain other ways of knowing that I think always come back to some metaphysical assertion. Um, and we sort of sometimes view, very often view ourselves as detached from that. And this is, you know, very much seen in the appeals to um, a believed certainty in, you know, trust the science, this sort of thing. And then yeah. without the understanding that actually within the empirical study of science, there's, there isn't that sort of consistency that a metaphysical knowing is is looking to require here. Um, but I think that really t- that ties into an opening quote you have in the book um, from Molly Hitter, which is, 
the only alternate to theology seems to be paranoia. When I, I, I'm not familiar with her, but I really like that quote. And I'm just kind of, I know it's probably a smaller quote, very out of context with a larger body of work, but I'm just kind of wondering, you know, if that was this, the reason why you chose that quote and kind of what that means to you. Yeah, I adore that quote. She is a scholar on a, a um, writer named Thomas Pitchin, who wrote a book called Crying Lot 49 and Gravity's Rainbow. And one of the things that really interested Thomas Pitchin is this problem of how um, the structure, like in, to take Crying Lot 49, and we're actually seeing this today, that the structure of a conspiracy is just as internally consistent as a philosophy and that therefore you can't tell the difference between, say, a conspiracy and a truth by the structure alone. You have to go into the truth or conspiracy. Well, but once you enter into the system, it's internally consistent. You will not find within the system reason to think that it is wrong. And so, you know, you have uh, Odifia Mass. She goes on this big quest to determine what this trumpet is and the mail company and all these different things. And at the end of the day, it could all be in her head, but maybe not. Right. You know, maybe it's not. And so you know, what that quote is getting at, because then under it, it talks about Thomas that will, you know, follow the truth wherever it may lead. Well, here's the thing, like, how do you determine the truth? And you, no one thinks they're not operating according to truth. Like, that's really important. Like, no one by definition thinks they're operating according to falsity. But of course, lots of people are um, uh, operating according to a falsity. But you see, you can take a quote like, follow truth wherever it leads and go deeper and deeper to QAnon because you're the lone individual who's following the truth while everyone else is a coward. And so those kind of ideas of follow truth wherever it leads or, you know, stand out while everyone else is against you or, you know, stand out of the crowd, all of those values that talk about the lone individual actually can contribute to you falling into a conspiratorial madness, or maybe, you know, you know, supporting an idea that all the corporations are using COVID to get rid of the population or something. And you're like, yeah, and you just kind of go deeper and deeper into that. And so like, what's the difference, you know, a madman and a genius are both people who think for themselves. You see, so what's the difference between a genius and a madman, right? Not you. Well, who's actually true? Who's actually right? And you see, theology gave you a way of having kind of stepping out of the system. You got finitude, right? You've got the finite world, and then you had a God's eye view to determine what is true. And you could say, okay, well, God said X, therefore X is true. Now, of course, that gets into hermeneutics. It's not so simple, but at least gave you an existential feeling that you could rise out of the slings and arrows and the sea of trouble and all that and have an idea of what is actually true. Well, you get rid of theology. Well, you're just in the finite and you're just in the internally, all these different internally consistent systems. And you don't, and you don't readily have a heuristic to determine which system you should follow and which should not. The dream of the enlightenment, and that was a really good association you made, Mr. Barnes, to the enlightenment. The dream of the enlightenment was that there was only one internally consistent system. And that was the truth. There was only one. So if we could find the worldview that was internally consistent, that entailed no inherent contradiction, that inhaled no error, you know, that would be the only one, right? Well, it actually turns out that um, because there are lots of ways of knowing, not just side, you can't simply get to uh, the truth by removing subjectivity, right? Because it's always present. I've been doing this reading group with Davoud on that's a problem in a John on something in hist historical studies, like getting to a study of history that's just pure facts. Well, you can't do it because it always has to be arranged, right? Like it has to be arranged into a narrative. But once you do that, who determines the arrangement? And you have the same problem in, in science, right? So the dream of the enlightenment was basically, there's only, there's, there's only one internally consistent system out there. And if we can find an internally consistent system or worldview, 
then we're done because that's the only possible one. But as the internet is unveiled, as it turns out, there are lots of different ways of knowing that there's actually lots of internally consistent systems. And so therefore the, the dream of autonomous rationality as David Hume and Livingston, and then we'll talk about, you know, is, is not enough. And, but of course, if it's not enough, that means we have to enter into the arena of lots of ways of knowing and everything becomes much, much, much more existentially difficult. Everything becomes much more politically messy. Everything becomes um, much harder. And it's almost as if because we put so much hope in the Enlightenment dream that we were kind of habituating ourselves to that turning out to be the case. And as it's not turning out to be the case, it's almost like losing the Freudian primordial unity as me and you know, Dr. Lass and I talk about. And it's like, no, no, we don't want to lose it. And so we're kind of denying the problems that we face, um, these epistemological problems, still clinging to an old um, Enlightenment epistemology that is not good enough. And what we end up doing, of course, is that then people who question that in a political arena get crushed with totalitarianism. You know, you get crushed, you know, silenced, even though they may have valid objections. But then the people over there just continue to fragment into all of these different internally consistent systems and all these different conspiracies. So you have really a mess both on the side of institutions and on the side on, on the individual level because you're clinging to um, the dream of the Enlightenment or you're just completely throwing out rationality entirely. There's a ditch on either side of the road. Um, and we're not facing the reality of the conflict of mind to feel how we can manage it, how we can live with it. You know, Johannes, I always love when he talks about problems. You know, there are problems we can solve and make vanish, but then there are problems we can only manage, right? And he makes that example of a cliff. You know, you climb a cliff to the top and you look around. It's not like the cliff vanishes. It's still there, right? The conflict of mind is a problem we have to manage. But the Enlightenment gave us a sort of vision that all problems could be solved. So as we're having to face the reality that some problems can only be managed, we don't even have a heuristic to understand problems as such. So we're freaking out, like we're, we're going nuts, both on the individual and political level. So you end up with paranoia. You end up with paranoia, conspiracies and madness. Once you killed God, like once you... um. You know, as we know, when Nietzsche says, you know, you know, God is dead and it's so important in Nietzsche, this is tragic. Everyone views that as triumphant. He's like, what in the world are we going to do now? <laughs> you know, we kill God. So, you know, you kill God and it unleashes conspiracy. It unleashes paranoia. It wouldn't have if the dream of the Enlightenment was true. You know, if the dream of the Enlightenment and there was a single internally consistent was true, then the death of God should have actually brought about that universal internally consistent system. But since it wasn't true, the death of God resulted in this endless um, pluralization of internally consistent systems. And it's like uh, Charles Taylor, the Nova effect, the secular age, where he talks about this sort of splintering off of endless beliefs. And, and we haven't accepted that's what the death of God has done. You know, we haven't accepted that. So we're clinging to an old epistemology that is not proving um, adequate. Mm -hmm. I just want to just come back again to kind of and i think i hope that we kind of overlap on this but it'd be interesting to see if there's disagreement is that mm. the kind of the critique of the enlightenment we're coming at here is not that we're not critiquing the idea of truth right we're not no, going no, no, no. to deconstruction and saying Actually, right. there is no no such right. thing that would be easy that would almost be easy right yeah a little bit too continental for my liking um but <laughs> um that's not the critique right but the critique right. that um the, the assertion of the enlightenment that, um, and maybe this comes back into what we might think of as dialectic, right? But that mm. thinking is going to leave us, lead us all to this one, one truth. Yes, unity. Yeah. And it's interesting because again, like that's, it sounds like I'm suggesting there's many truths, but we're human beings, right? Like you said, with history, right. arranged things. And arrangement, that, that, that way of study also applies to science because 
just as certain histories include, they also proclude. And certain sciences, interpretations of sciences include, but also proclude, right? And yes. as fallible beings, you know, I might have um, a political stance that factors into the way I view the empirical data or ignore the empirical data. I might have, um, you know, biases over trying to believe the first thing I saw and all these sorts of things. And that, I really feel that gets to the, the core of what you're getting at with the conflict of mind, but particularly truth organizers values um, this, this first chapter, because um, there's many examples. You're, you're talking about these things in a more embodied as opposed to some extract metaphysical sense, which is kind of what deconstruction or um, hyper enlightenment are talking about, for example. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. It, it would almost be too easy to just say that there's no truth, right? Because then, then you're you're done. And the 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 thing is, if truth organizes values, if there is no truth, then we can't organize our values, and it becomes a giant mess of just values fighting, conflict, and and everything kind of falling apart. It it becomes a disaster. Um, there's certainly truth, like you know, this is a notepad. I can feel it, even if the signifier notepad doesn't apply to it. You know, this thing is here. So there's absolutely truth. I like the the issue is. Um, and I was talking with Dr. Last about this, the difference between um, the truth and the absolute to allude to Hegel. So the truth is to allude to Wittgenstein, um, you know, everything that is the case, right? Like everything that is the case, the sum total of facts, how he opens the Tractatus. Um, tractatus. Uh, the absolute in Hegel is everything that is the case, plus us, plus people, plus subjectivity interacting with those facts. Changing constitutes those facts, changing the subjects as they, as they interact with those facts, which in turn changes everything that's the case. And you have this live thing. You have this movement that's going on. But there is, in fact, an absolute, as to use Hegel's language. There is, in fact, a concrete reality. The dream of the Enlightenment, basically, is that there, there's no distinction between the truth and the absolute. Like, if we can determine everything that is the case, if we can bracket out the subject, basically, if we can bracket out subjectivity and just figure out everything that is the case then subjectivity can conform to everything that is the case. And that confirmate that conforming will actually be optimal. That will actually give to a better society that will make things better. So bracket out subjectivity, determine everything that is the case, and then bring subjectivity back in to acknowledge everything that is the case. Uh, and then that will be best for everyone. What Hegel basically says, um, of course, it's notoriously difficult at the end of the phenomenology of the spirit. It's like, you can never bracket out um, the subject because the subject uh, people are always in relation with facts and they're determining what facts to notice, which ones not to notice, on which not to write treatise. So there's a live occurrence that is happening. Um, and so it becomes much more difficult. Like you have to actually include the role of subjectivity in people in your um, schema of how the world works if you're going to actually be talking about the real world as opposed to an abstraction. And uh, a way to kind of articulate this point, and Hayden White brought this up in the study of history, it's kind of weird, but if you think about it, facts are actually the abstractions. You know, uh, the event that facts are about is more real. Like for example, this office, I'm sitting in this office, I'm talking to you, you know, I'm moving my hand, so forth and so on. So there's an event, right? It's not just a chronicle of facts, but it's an event that's occurring. After this event, I could then write down a list of the facts that constituted the event, but notice that the list, the list of facts actually come after the event. Okay. But then what do we do? We actually tend to think that the facts are more fundamental than the event, that the truth of the event was the chronicle of facts. And then we start to treat the facts as if 
fundamental to the event. When the event occurred, then we created the facts. And what the Enlightenment did is that, and therefore get rid of the event and just talk with the facts, right? Hegel's like, no, you can't do that. You have to, you have to keep the event the whole way through, which of course is way, way harder. So it's, so basically what the conflict of mind is getting at is it's not saying you get rid of the truth. Once we do that, it's kind of over. Like you have pure deconstruction, you can't organize values and democracy. Well, democracy is doomed at that point, just, you know, just about, uh, the, the issue is that it's way, way harder than the Enlightenment believed it was, and yet it is still necessary. That's the thing. Like, it is still a necessary endeavor. And so then the question becomes, okay, maybe we can't determine ultimate truth, like the sum total of the absolute, but maybe we can get glimmers of the absolute here and there. Maybe we can determine it in regard to if we should have universal health care or not. Maybe we can determine it in regard to, uh, you know, if I should marry this woman or not, or, you know, vice versa. But there, it becomes like, you can, you, you don't like, sometimes we think it's almost weird. It's like, we think we can't determine ultimate truth or that it's always, it's always incomplete. This is how I like to put it. I like to say that whatever our understanding of the absolute is, it's always incomplete. It's not wrong. Like there's these conflations of terms where we go, it's incomplete. Therefore it's not, it's not true at all. That's a mistake. It can be incomplete and still relate to the truth in that incompleteness. Uh, So you don't want to conflate those things together. But even if it was the case that you couldn't determine the ultimate truth or the entirety of the absolute, you could still determine it in little episodes, right? In little episodes that make up your daily life if you figure out the right mental models and the right epistemologies. So we all, um, the, the, the brain seems to be, and this is another paper and the map is indestructible. We all tend to be a monotheorists which means we tend to look for a single theory to explain everything. And that's what we cling to. It's very unnatural to be a polytheorist, someone who has different theories that apply to different situations based on what the subject is. And we have a tendency to either be an enlightenment, you know, there's a single truth, you know, monotheory, you know, we'll figure it out. Or we tend to be an epistemic nihilist where we say, well, we can't know truth, therefore forget about it. You know, the, 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 key, the, the right road is the road between those two uh, that's more polythe, that's more polytheoristic. And obviously that's a play on polytheist, polytheorist, monotheist, monotheory uh, is, is to find that road. So it's a much more difficult task. Mm-hmm. And yes, yeah, so I, I really um, like your way of putting this epistemological problem less as, you know, reality is a series of uh, epistemological attributes or something like this, but there's like an event model and what do events, events involve relations and this sort of stuff. So um, maybe if I could just read um, part of the opening um, of Please. the chapter, just because I think it, you know, uh, sort of exemplifies what we're trying to describe here in a really succinct way. So uh, what is rational, responsible, honest, moral, sane, genius, and so on is relative to what we believe is true. If I'm a bird, then leaping off a cliff isn't insane, but perfectly normal. If I'm sick, then it's responsible for me to go see a doctor. If I'm not sick, then it is perhaps a waste of time. If I were a gang member and scheduled to execute an innocent person and um, are to prove myself punctual, it would, if otherwise it would prove myself to be a murderer. What constitutes a value is relative to what is the case. However, we are all stuck in interpretation. So none of us know what is the case only, but what we think is the case. So this is, uh, you know, it's uh, quite an interesting example. So the way we can view birds and murderers in this um, epistemological um, event model, because alike, they're kind of presented with the same problem that, you know, you know, us two, a a couple of nerdy guys are talking about on Zoom right now, you know. (laughs) 
So, um, but yeah, I, don't, I think it's really, really interesting, you know, because I mean, it's obviously, you know, a classical epistemological certainty to say, well, well you know, um, one, one scenario makes me a murderer and one scenario makes me a very punctual and effective employee and that sort of thing. But um, I just think that's a really succinct way of, of putting it. In, instead of going the full deconstructionist relative terms, trying to put this in um, a framework of event-driven epistemology. Does that summarize kind of what you were getting at in the opening there? Is there anything else you'd like oh, yeah, to Oh that, yeah, that's excellent, Samuel. I, I really appreciate that. I was, it was wonderful. Uh, yeah, because, um, well, if you had a bird that's wing was broken, jumping off the cliff would be stupid, right? So then is the truth, does the, the wing work or not? So like determining the truth is necessary for determining what you should do what the meaning of the value is, uh, like to say, to throw out truth. Well, if the bird jumps off a cliff and, it, and its wing doesn't work, it's going to die. There is a very tangible, very concrete cause and effect that will follow from this. So unfortunately, sometimes truth, like you almost have this problem where truth becomes a word that's too mystical, almost like it has this kind of mystical platonic feel to it. But there's actually just kind of a very concrete, obvious meaning of truth as well. Um, the issue becomes that truth on more and more complex systems becomes harder to determine and that feels more abstract. The truth of does universal healthcare work feels different from is the bird's wing working or not. And yet it's, it's on the same gradient. It's just on a higher and higher level of complexity. And that's kind of important to realize. Like even if you, so if you believe in God, then God is just as much a fact as this pen. He's just, in a, he's just transcendent. It's a different ontology, right? It would only be from the perspective of God that you could know God was a fact. So, you know, you have this sort of like, once you kind of make truth too mystical, kind of too abstract, it's very easy to fall into the Derrida sort of notion that we can't, we can't understand it. And, you know, for Derrida, so much of the critique of, of getting at meta, where he throws out all metaphysics is the way I like to say it is that he refers to all metaphysics as a metaphysics of the gap, meaning you have a signifier, you have the signified, and you can never close that gap. Therefore, this is deferred away, and all you have are the signifiers. Um, and and there, there's some truth to that. Uh, but you see, the issue is that gap may just mean the signifier may just be incomplete of the signified. You know, there's too much of a noumenon there, you know, in a sense that, and even like Hegel's big critique of Kant is that, well, Kant, in order for you to know that you never know the thing itself, you'd have to be across the noumenon to know that the phenomenon has nothing to do with the noumenon. How do you know that, right? Like, how can you do that? You, you can't actually know for sure that the noumenon is a really hard break, right? So likewise, the ontological gap, there's too much Kant actually in it, you know, that bad reading of Kant. I think Kant, I, I have a theory I, I, that, and it would be an entirely different subject. I think Kant actually realized this in the, the, the second critique and the third critique, and he tried to correct it. It's a different, different conversation. Um, but anyway, like, just because you get, just because the truth of does universal healthcare work is more far away, there's a bigger gap, if you will. It is not the case that our idea of if universal healthcare works or not can't have anything to do with what is actually the case. And in fact, it may be entirely the same, right? You know, it is the case that your phenomenological take of the pen is actually identical to the pen in of itself. You just can't have certainty that's the case. That's really the key with the noumenon. It's more of kind of a, it's more like you can't ever have certainty it's the case. But you also can't have certainty that it's not the case. It works both ways, if you see what, I, what I'm saying. So, you know, so likewise, perhaps we, it's since we can see the bird in front of us and its wing does not work, it becomes very easy to identify that if it jumps off a cliff, it, it will die, that that would be a bad value. Um, whereas with universal healthcare, from the perspective of the, of the total system, if you could actually understand it, 
the, the idea that it works or not would be just as concrete um, as the bird jumping off the cliff. The issue is perspective, like point, like where you're located in the system and how much of the information you can take in, uh, which then creates the impression that truth is this kind of platonic distance that like it's distant, that it exists on an entirely different ontological realm when really it's on the same, it's on the same realm as us. It's just, um, it's just very far along the gradient in terms of complexity. This is really important to note because I do think the mistake of deconstruction and relativism is actually to treat tr truth. They treat truth like it's vertical and we're horizontal and therefore we have nothing to do with it. Um, so when you describe it the way I'm describing, then truth, it's all on the same horizontal plane. It's just really hard to know and hard to determine. And yet we nevertheless must try uh, because, because, uh, because it organizes our values. It's impossible. It's impossible to operate not suggesting that something is true. It's really important. Like if, um, if, I, uh, if, if I go and visit my uncle, then I am suggesting that it is true that it's good to go see your uncle, right? Like if I, uh, if I vote for Joe Biden, then I am suggesting that Joe Biden is more right than, uh, than Donald Trump or something like that. Like, it, you know, you always have to be acting according to the idea of the true, of what you think is true. But you may just think that you're defending freedom or that you're defending equality. Like you say, well, I'm voting for Joe Biden because he's going to increase minority rights or something, or he's going to increase equality. Well, then if the question is, is that actually true? Will Joe Biden actually put forth policies that increase minority rights, right? Well, you must be suggesting in your action that, that, is, that your association of him with the value of equality is accurate, and therefore that it is true that he will do something that will increase equality or so on and so forth. Or if you vote for Donald Trump, he'll increase freedom. Well, he may turn around and do things that decrease freedom, uh, right? So, so it's impossible to act. If, if you are acting according to a value, which you must, and this is where I like your work so much because you can't, you know, you can't be, uh, you can't, uh, you can't show nihilism. You can only tell nihilism. Like if you are acting according to a value, you must also be suggesting a truth that is unavoidable. But you see, sometimes the hard relativism um, creates the impression that you can operate according to a value and not also be suggesting a truth, and that that's a big mistake. Yeah, I feel like again, the examples you're giving are a good demonstration of where people so often, you know, revert to uh, epistemological absolutism. So suggesting there's this one truth and that's the case. Um, and then also, you know, going to the, oh, it all seems a bit pointless and there's no point in even trying to pursue truth because it probably isn't there. And we seem to disagree on so much because I mean, with the, with the bird example, um, we're quite familiar <laughs> with when something's not working for a living creature, right? Because that bird falls down and it doesn't have a pulse anymore, you know? Um, but the whole, uh, the whole, who am I going to vote for issue is, you know, we've got a, we've got a, a moving substrate of, um, thinking beings here, right? There's the thinking being, which is, you know, the prospective president, there's the thinking being, which is the, the voter in the booth. And then there, you know, the idea of, uh, minority rights or equality. And then, well, you know, even with people who seem like they agree so much on something, there's got to be a difference in their definition of these two things. I think yes. that so often puts people off the, um, um, the search for truth or the search for things that can, you know, unify us and bring us together as opposed to, um, you know, reverting back to power, power games and all this sort of stuff. But I think the, so something you keep bringing up is that um, values are relative to truth, right? So um, let's try and get onto what we're talking about in terms of values as opposed to um, the arguments about absolute truth and deconstruction. And I, I sort of, in that statement, I think, you, I think you say values are relative to truth quite often in this first chapter, at least. Um, and I sort of, I was trying to understand what exactly that 
sort of what the deeper meaning of that is I sort of flipped it on its head and tried to understand that okay so the truth isn't relative we're going to assert a truth right so the values are all relative to this to the truth um yes. but the values the values that we come to they are the relative thing right so again like i said it's this this different model of epistemology um which kind of you know allows for um human fallibility and different subjects and all this sort of stuff um and it's, it's interesting that you you know bring up honesty like empirical honesty because and actually it's interesting you bring up kant as well because to bring up some of his um ethical work um it's it kind of comes back to the um virtual of the categorical truth as well because you know, in the traditional view of people studying Kant's categorical truth, it's that, you know, there is a, uh, a murderer and it would be wrong to lie to him about the epistemological fact that the person he's trying to murder is behind that door, right? But this moving, moving values and us as a result, as, as separating that from the epistemological truth, kind of seems to give some leeway there, possibly even rehabilitating the um, Kantian categorical as an ethical... Um, something ethical that's gone out of fashion but um yeah i'm not sure what you think about that no i, I love that example there was um there's a great lecture series from a professor who i like named dr um, sandell he did this pretty famous series at harvard on justice and he brought up kant's example where you know should you uh, you can never lie to the murderer and you see one of the students because he'll do this thing he's really quite lovely he'll ask to you know point to students as like 500 people or whatever, remember their names and different things. And one of the students says, well, what if you reply to the murderer that you don't know where they are? And Sandel's like, all right, we'll go on. And the student's like, well, you know, because they may have moved, you know, so you don't actually know where they, they are because so you're not actually lying. Uh, and Sandel says, you see, that's really important because what you're doing in that act is you're still honoring the truth because you actually technically don't know if they're still in the bedroom when the murderer asks if they're in the bedroom and yet you're still not giving the murderer the truth you know you're like you're you're not giving them the information that they want because there's this i think it's spooled or someone he said you know the reason you don't give the murderer the truth is because he doesn't deserve the truth he hasn't he himself has not acted according to the categorical imperative to therefore warrant receiving the truth. So that's another response to that. But I actually prefer Sandel's uh, a little more, his kind of take on it, because it's like, that's the way we tell them, well, I don't, you know, I don't know if they're in the bedroom and you're actually not lying because there is enough of a gap by which it's possible that they moved. And you see there, that is critical because what it's showing you is that you can actually honor the truth and still not fall into a situation, you know, you cannot deny the truth, I mean, you can still not deny the truth, you can still honor the truth, and yet not tell the murderer that your wife is in the bedroom upstairs, right? So, and then, and therefore, you can actually honor the value of your marriage, you can honor the truth that you want to protect her. You see, the problem with that example is there's actually a lot of truths that are being operated on, right? Like there's the truth that you love your wife, there's the truth that you would protect your wife. There's the truth that a murderer has acted in a manner of which would suggest they're not deserving of the truth. But there's also the truth that you don't know if they're still in the bedroom. You see that example that with Khan, it's kind of like isolating a single truth, but there's actually multiple things that are in operation. And the question becomes, what is the answer you could give the murderer that honors all of those operations of truth and yet still protects your wife? And that's where the answer, I don't know if she's in the bedroom, would actually not be alive because technically you don't know she's in the bedroom. And I think that is really important because you start to escape this kind of hard absolutism or I, you know, it's more like certainty because the truth is in a sense absolute relative to itself, right? Like if in fact the bird's wing is broken, that's kind of hard. It's like, it's almost like you want to say hard instead of absolute 
absolute because absolute has all this kind of connotation and weight to it. But you say it's kind of a hard reality that the bird's wing is broken and therefore if it drops, it's going to die. There's a hard cause and effect, right? Um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's actually a hard reality that you don't know see still in the bedroom. Uh, and yet you, you're, you're not saying that, that, that there is no absolute, that there is no truth, but you're also actually, what's really interesting is actually in that example of Kant, it's almost like you're going deeper into the truth. Like, it's almost like, well, actually, I technically don't know she's still in the bedroom. Far from abandoning the truth when you say she's not in the bedroom, what's so interesting is you're actually almost honoring the truth more than if you said she was in the bedroom. Because how do you know she's in the bedroom? That's what's so interesting with that example is that actually in a very real sense, telling the murderer that your wife is in the bedroom would not be honoring the truth because you actually technically don't know that she's in the bedroom. So that's what's so funny is that actually a lot, a lot of the problem with our, um, our, a lot of the problem that makes us think that relativism is the answer is not going deep enough into truth. Like we don't actually go hard into it to actually see that the very fabric of reality and space-time itself does not warrant us. Like the hard reality of space-time itself does not warrant us certainty and does not allow us to have certainty. And so therefore speaking in terms of certainty is actually dishonoring the truth more than speaking in terms of not having certainty. Speaking as if you don't have certainty actually honors the truth more because the nature of reality itself, moving through time, causality change, is one where you can't have certainty. But wouldn't it be easy if we could say we can't have certainty, therefore we can't know anything, therefore we don't have to think? No, but we can still have confidence. That's what the second paper will then take up. It's like, no, you can't have certainty, but you can't have confidence. I don't know for a fact that if I drop this pen, it's gonna fall, but you know, Nine, 99% of the time it does. So I have confidence it's going to fall, right? But because there's a divide between confidence and certainty, you can speak to the murderer in that, in that divide that's actually honoring the, the nature of reality itself. So like, I like that example because you're actually like going deeper, closer toward truth, not, not running from it when you tell the murderer, I don't know if he's in the bedroom. Right. And it's with that respect to truth in, in the kind of, you know, clever really annoying student in that lecture sidestepy way of looking at it but you also interestingly with that example you also respect values as well because yep. okay you're you know being a bit clever with what you're saying to the ex-murderer but you're also you know respecting your value of not wanting to be complicit in a crime right especially yep. not the murder of your wife <laughs> right so, um yeah I, I think that's a, a like a good rehabilitation of the Kantian categorical which is um so often I don't know kind of taken out of like taken as a simpler thing that it actually is on paper, you know. Um, oh like yeah. This, this um, something something you you wrote um, about motivation is is like really apt to that sort of conflict between the you know that ultimate respect for truth, but also trying to incorporate our values. So on, on motivation, you write it matters why the person is angry, the truth of the motivation, and if a person is angry because he or she is an ideologue, we perhaps should ignore the anger. So again, not exactly the axe murderer who's completely deranged or that sort of thing. Although, you know, the way ideology is going this way, that's pretty close. Um, so I don't know. I'm just kind of wondering what your understanding of ideology and ideologue is. And maybe not even in like a um, just definition sense. I mean, sure. maybe let's maybe let's buttress ourselves into the current current time and talk about what we think ideology is doing right now. Oh, sir. And, and I wanted to add, too, I really like how you brought up. It's exactly the case that values are relative to truth, you know, more so than truth is value. But since values bring with them a truth, 
truth, it all that is what gives us the feeling that truth is relative. Right. You know, so that's and then it gets transferred to the truth. So that's the mistake. It's actually the values of which are conditioned or relative by the truth in determining what values actually be exercised. But since that necessarily accompanies a truth, it then becomes very easy to feel like from that experience that truth is therefore relative when it's the ideas of truth that are um, that are that are relative. And those are going to necessarily be accompanied by a value. Um, that corresponds. Um, so, so I really like how you brought brought those together. Uh, when it comes to ideology, the, the the language of ideology in the paper is going to be a a system of thought, a worldview, but it's going to go a little deeper and be talking about ideologies as internally consistent worldviews, meaning there is no essential contradiction that would unveil the ideology to be false, to be necessarily false, right? Because there's this idea that if I can find an essential contradiction in someone's worldview, then the whole thing will fall apart. And that, that's Derrida, right? That's kind of the dream of Derrida. If we can go into the text, find that little note that Heidegger hit at the end of Being of Time footnote, where he kind of suggests that he kind of understands that you can never get to the being of being and just tug on that, then the entire project of being in time falls apart. Now, I don't think Derrida actually does that, but that was always kind of his method. Like look in the footnotes, look for the terms that aren't defined and tug on it. And then that's going to unveil that the whole thing is, is a ruse. Again, that's the kind of funny thing about Derrida. He's kind of an anti-Enlightenment thinker, but in my view, he actually is still operating according to Enlightenment principles. Um, when instead, you know, what, what you have is that, in, for me, what Derrida would be doing is proving that something is not an ideology, it's just wrong. Right. An ideology is internally consistent where within the ideology, there is no reason to think the ideology is wrong. Like it all works. There's no essential contradictions. Everything follows. Like this is um, like, let's take conservatism and liberalism within America. Now, this is a very big topic because then I would be responsible to walk through the entire history of liberalism and conservatism. But if you'll take my word for it, um, cons you know. <laughs> Yeah, we don't have time, right? We got four hours. Um, but if you take my word for it, um, liberalism relative to its axioms, very important, relative to its axioms, its assumptions that it must make to even be possible, liberalism is internally consistent. Conservatism relative to the axioms that it assumes in order to be possible is internally consistent. Well, how do you determine if you should be a liberal or a conservative? Mm. Because within the ideologies themselves, you're not going to find reason not to be. You're forever, and that's the Pitchin. That's the problem of Thomas Pitchin, right? You're in Crying Lot 49. You'll never see reason to leave. Maybe liberalism's a giant conspiracy, but you'll never feel reason to get out of the conspiracy, quote unquote, based on Pitchin. Or maybe conservatism is. How do you know? Well, as you know, ultimately, the, the book will get into the issue of experience, common life, this is where science does play, play a role, because sometimes it can unveil things outside of the ideology, but not always. Because very, very often the very scientific experiments that are done, the very way the terms are defined is according to the ideology that the person is operating in. Oh, and by the way, since the ideology is internally consistent, they actually think that they should understand science that way. Because everywhere they look in the ideology, they're like, well, yeah, of course we're going to understand science according with this ideology because there's no essential contradiction within it. Mm. But then, of course, that's the problem, right? Science becomes in service of the ideology. Oh, but here's the thing. Very important. Just because you conclude X via ideology, it does not follow that X is false. Wouldn't it be easy if we could simply figure out where ideology is lurking and therefore determine where it's false? I feel like that's what a lot of deconstruction does. And that's another dream of the Enlightenment. Because what are you saying? You're saying that there actually is only one internally consistent, like one true system that one 
once we find it's going to operate um, when actually you have lots of internally consistent systems and uh, that that alone uh, is not going to solve the problem where you can just kind of deconstruct them automatically on the, on those grounds. Because if you could say that if you arrive at a conclusion through ideological thinking, that conclusion is false, well, then you never have to take the problem of ideology seriously. Like you never have to investigate the internally consistent systems. All you got to do is locate ideology and say there's ideology and then you're done with it. But if it is the case that you can make right conclusions through ideology, and here's the thing, maybe even because of ideology, it actually could be the case that the reason you arrive at a truth is because of bias. You know, it could be because of idea. We always kind of conclude that, oh, if you're biased, then therefore you're wrong. That doesn't follow. It may even be because of the bias or the or the the ideological thinking that you arrive at the truth. But how much easier would it be if we could just kind of say, if you arrive at that way, you're out. And this, again, brings us back to the difference between the truth and the absolute. You know, if we can just say the truth is everything that is the case, well, then we're good to go. All we got to do is bracket out, bracket out the subject, the person, the personal of which is necessarily the breeding ground of ideology, right? Ideology does not appear in nature. It appears in people, right? So if you bracket out people, you can also bracket out the problem of ideology. And if you've moralized that as a value, as an enlightenment value to get at the truth, then you're good to go. But the moment you start saying, no, 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 we have to go, we have to search for something more like Hegel's absolute of which incorporates the subject, well, things get a lot, lot harder. And yet, they're still necessary to, to tackle. They're still necessary to confront, which then as, um, which actually then far from suggesting the irrelevancy of philosophy, the irrelevancy of epistemology, the irrelevancy of learning how to think, suddenly those become the most important, the most important skills in the world, just about. <laughs> like they suddenly go from being this funny thing that, uh, you know, um, some crazy people on Zoom on a noon on a Monday would be, be talking about to being, utterly essential to the functioning of society. And, and what has happened to, to kind of bring in, and I'll pass it back to you, is the enlightenment has given us the impression that all we need is knowledge. Like if we can get knowledge and if we get people educated about the knowledge, democracy will work because ultimately people will disagree, but they'll all converge upon the knowledge. But if it is actually the case that you cannot avoid interpretation, or that knowledge is not the same thing as um, the absolute, the truth is not the same as the absolute, that there has to be a subjective element that you can never escape. Um, that is actually part of the event that must be incorporated to actually get at the truth. Well, then philosophy really matters. Like you're not, not, you know, not just data, but the way to handle the data, to understand the data, to think about the data, to navigate through the values and the truth and the different ideologies, those become utterly necessary skills for surviving in a, especially a globalized uh, pluralistic world. It becomes utterly necessary. And it's interesting how we've kind of, although coming into what seems like a very political word, ideology, we've kind of already, by looking at it through the lens of epistemology, escaped that sort of um, political boundary. I mean, obviously, ideology, ideologue, today is used as a like pejorative insult yeah. than anything really and i suppose we can kind of rehabilitate you know what are essentially political thinking systems by looking at them as internally consistent now this is it's interesting what you were saying i'm not as uh well-read data as you are but um the example of him pulling at what he saw as the inconsistencies and hiding a system to try and get it to fall apart right because i think maybe maybe we disagree on this i don't know but i would say in ideologies there are 
actually and quite often inconsistencies, but this takes them from what we might call an internally consistent system to just being falsely wrong, right? right. And I, th I think we don't even, again, like I said, we kind of escape politics because you can see um, dogmatic systems of philosophy um, or even, you know, dogmatic systems with certain axioms, which, you know, materialism is, you'd have to be a fool to deny it's not internally consistent and has massive utility for us as human beings. Um, but it is kind of rehabilitating this. And it's also, you know, instead of viewing, you know, whatever school of thought it is, whether it's politics, um, philosophy or science as, you know, many camps of warring ideologies or, you know, internally deranged systems to look at them as, you know, in the intellectual mode of being, they're all kind of um, internally consistent systems that we can learn something from each of them as long as they are internally consistent, right? And that's kind of, that's, exactly. that's the uh, kind of skill we need to grow here. That's kind of the challenge of, of this, this chapter, at least, is that we need to grow that skill. And that's, that's the real skill. It's not the discernment of truth from falsity, but it's um, the methods by which we discern truth from falsity in these internally consistent systems. Is that fair? That, 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 that's excellent, Samuel, because, you know, in the book, I make a distinction between, like you're saying, so you have a false system and an ideology, right? Like if you determine a false system, in a sense, it's like, it's almost like it vanishes. It, it net, all false systems, before you determine that they are false, appear as a internally consistent system, right? It has to, like it is going to appear as an ideology, but then you go in and to determine that it's actually false. And it's like, it was never an ideology. It's almost like it reaches back in time. It's a flip, there's a paper in there called flip moments. And it like, it reaches back in time and makes it to where it was never actually an ideology. It only appeared as an ideology. And, um, but so the dream of the enlightenment was that every single apparent ideology would be ultimately proved to be false, except one. The only system that would, there would only ultimately be one system that was internally consistent, and that would be the truth. But what we have actually found is that you have thousands of false systems, and then you have like maybe hundreds of ideology, or maybe 50 ideologies, maybe 20. I don't know. I haven't viewed the, I'm not God, so I can't see how many there are. So there's definitely thousands of false systems, and that's really important. And actually, to determine false systems, you don't need to be as philosophically skilled. You know, you actually just kind of need science or data or facts and you'll unveil, well, that's just a false system. There's nothing there and it will vanish, poof. Where philosophy becomes critically important is when you're dealing with ideologies. So you, you have this one layer where the enlightenment and Derrida and all of them was very useful to help us get rid of the thousands of false systems. But now what we're finding is that there's maybe, I'm just gonna throw out a random number. There's 30 ideologies. There's 30 ideologies. And those 30 ideologies is enough to cause massive political you know, craziness, uh, social craziness. And the only way to deal with those 30 ideologies now necessarily becomes a philosophical skill, right? It necessarily becomes a philosophical skill that's also trying to incorporate experience, that's trying to incorporate subjective, you know, it, it becomes much more about the humanities and the quote unquote soft sciences once you move, you move here, you know, and you see, because you see, you have all these other things, like you could have an ideology that's internally consistent, but maybe it's incomplete. Like, for example, maybe it's a map, but it's too small compared to the territory. So it's all internally consistent, but it's too small. So you say, well, this ideology isn't, but it's not in you. The philosopher would come and say, well, you need to expand it because it's leaving some different out. And you actually, that was very vague. But the point I'm getting at is when you take the problem of internally consistent systems seriously, 
It's actually a radically different set of questions you start asking, as opposed to just figuring out what are false systems. And they tend to be very deep philosophical questions and epistemological skills. And so really, hopefully what the conflict of mind will do is, because I, I just feel like we've, we're really just feeling like, it's almost like we're overfitting what we learned from the enlightenment, like overfitting in computer science. I, I always get it confused, underfitting, overfitted. Like we're over applying the enlightenment. The enlightenment was really useful and positivism for getting rid of all the thousands of false systems or whatever number, you know, it was really useful for that. But now we're coming to a place where the problem is not so much false systems as it is ideology. And the, the, what we learned from the enlightenment will not solve that problem because it's all internally consistent. All the systems are internally consistent. So now you start getting into philosophical skill. But unfortunately, we spent a few hundred years saying philosophical skill was stupid. And then neo-pragmatism and all these different things of saying we don't need it. And then we find ourselves faced with the problem of internally consistent systems. And we don't have the skills to, to know what to do with it. And, it. and I think it's a crisis. Right. And an extension of the Enlightenment is um, modern science, which, again, I've already yes. mentioned that we'd be stupid to doubt the utility and... yes power of this this what i would call a system um oh sure because without it you'd still have the thousands of false systems right. so it has a very necessary role right right and I, I i think what you're saying is after you know philosophy's been through um you know disappointments of the enlightenment it's gone through deconstruction where we don't even know who we are anymore and then this thing called science comes in that has amazing utility and every time a philosopher sees a you know sees some empirical data they seem to shit themselves and run for the hills, if you know what I mean. Um, so I think, you know, philosophy is becoming in, like completely powerless. Uh, certainly academic philosophy has become, become completely powerless in the face of um, the modern sciences. And it seems, it seems, and this is going to be something that leaves a sour taste in the mouth of a lot of people who maybe are um, enamored with the ideology of science or want philosophy to be a certain thing. But should and this is maybe i don't know i'm kind of asking your opinion here but i think this is kind of where we're, we're going towards but should uh, maybe this is the words you were saying were subjective and descriptive but should emotive information factor in our interpretation of truth it's a, it's a tremendous question um and and yeah uh, you know on the science thing um it's reasonable that we would make the mistake of overfitting science precisely because it is so amazing like, like you never have to worry about things that don't work overfitting. Like you don't have to worry about it because people are like, it don't work, so I'm not going to use it. It's precisely because science is so important and so great that it's just natural to feel like, well, this works, right? You know, it, it's like, of course, this would help solve the problems today. I mean, in fact, it, it's kind of funny because it shows you the limits of empiricism. Following the data, science has solved all of the problems. So then you would have reason to think that you should keep doing it. And that's where it's like the human problem, right? Like how do you, it's, you can't ever establish a natural law, but it seems like you can. And I actually think, again, this is where Hegel is so important because if you come into things with dialectical thinking, as opposed to kind of uniformal thinking, you say, well, that was the age of science. It was really necessary to get through false systems, but now we need philosophy, but we also don't want to have the philosophy that was pre-science that was overly metaphysical and it wasn't informed by, you know, experience or phenomenological experience. We wanted to have an informed philosophy. And also we maybe want to cater philosophy into really getting into questions of 
internally consistent systems. Like how do you deal, like how do two people get along that both have every reason in the world to think that their worldview is correct? What sort of questions should they be asking? What sort of categories of political compromise should they be doing? So there's these different sets, and that's a very extensive conversation. But you're, the way you do philosophy has also come through a dialectical process through, thanks to science, that actually makes it more useful. But to your point, one of the things that I do, like when you're talking about emotional experience, um, one of the things philosophy does indeed want to take into consideration now is the role of emotions. Um, now, what's funny is you also then have to do a philosophical examination of emotions. Like I make a distinction between emotionalism and emotional intelligence, right? You see, emotionalism is just the expressing of emotion, right? Where you go, I feel anger, therefore I have reason to be angry. This is the danger. You, you conclude that if I am angry, I must therefore be justified in that anger because otherwise I would not feel it. Well, that doesn't necessarily follow. You could, um, you could be wrong in the thing that you're angry about. And you, of course, feel that you're justified, but that's kind of a truism. It kind of it, it provides its own grounding in a way. Someone with emotional intelligence would come in and say, okay, you feel anger, or I feel anger. Therefore, there would be reason to think that there is something wrong, but not necessarily the case. So what made me feel anger? Oh, I saw my neighbor threw the trash into the road. Okay, well, why do you, why does that make you mad? Because he's he's littering. You're going, okay, well, do you know that your neighbor meant to throw it in the road? What if there was actually like a snake in it, a poisonous snake that he put out that he was trying to get out of the house as quick as possible, right? So that it didn't hurt someone in the family. Maybe there's more to the story. So then you go and you look out, you say, well, there's no snake here. He's just littering. So yeah, he shouldn't do it. So I'll, now I'll talk to him. But, but in emotional intelligence, is going to go, okay, you had an emotional response to something, which then gives you reason to investigate it on the terms of that emotion, but you cannot assume the conclusions of that emotion, right? And also who wants to live in a world where you don't have emotion, right? It would, it would be a painting that was black and white without color. So, so emotional intelligence is going to be taking emotions as a serious component of reality that may even have truth. Because sometimes you can feel an emotion of wonder towards something that you can't put into words yet because you don't have the mental categories. And yet, because you feel that wonder, you will then seek the mental categories, which then you'll get an understanding of it. So emotion can give you like, it can motivate you to launch a quest to gain higher knowledge that you wouldn't have done if you just said, well, the emotion of wonder doesn't matter. It's just a subjective feeling. So I'm going to, to bracket it out. And therefore you would never encounter the truth because, you know, philosophy starts in wonder, right? You know, in, in different things like that. And so we have to make distinctions between emotionalism, but here's the problem. Like the problem with deconstruction, in my view, to speak very generally, is it leads to a world of emotionalism, not emotional intelligence, right? It leads to a world of social interaction, but not social intelligence. Like you really want to take the intelligent component very seriously in EQ and, and social intelligence and different things like that. That like there has to be a certain crucible of the mind that the emotions go through uh, in order to get reason to think that they correspond with something actual. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting there as well, how that epistemological dogmatic approach to truth which is you know the angry neighbor who sees his you know neighbor throwing the trash out of the street um you know will end up in the headline of concerned citizen bitten by a poisonous snake and you know if there's a more um you know the values being relative to this ultimate truth and an acceptance that you know our absolute truth no matter how rational we think we are isn't always as absolute as we might expect it to be 
but it proves that this the, the epistemological view has a downstream effect on how we act as opposed to what's so often asserted which is the other direction right that is so big um our idea of the nature of truth practically impacts how we act in relation to that truth not the other way around that was hegel's point is like the absolute you can never discuss you can never talk about everything that is the case and not talk about how our idea of how of what constitutes everything is the case impacts our interaction with that thus changing everything that is the case in the history of mankind because if everyone has an idea that the truth is x then everyone is going to practice x and thus make it seem like x is the actual truth when really it could just be a, an internally consistent system that feeds itself right so you have so it is the other way around but but the moment you say it's the other way around crap everything becomes a lot harder like you there's a, the, you what's what is the ground you know you have to investigate the the other way to put this there's two there's two ways to take the question i don't know first i don't know therefore i don't know and you stop and then there's the i don't know therefore i'm going to investigate i'm going to look more into right um the big mistake is when you say truth is relative well the thing is it's not really that truth is relative it's more so if like dr smith talks about it's more so that truth is conditional and what i mean by that is in order to see if there is a snake in the trash bag or not i have to meet the condition of going out into the road and looking in the trash bag there are certain conditions i have to meet in order to experience the truth of what is in the trash bag it's not so much that it's relative that there is a snake and there's not a snake it's more so that in order to get the truth there are certain conditions you have to meet to be where you can receive it or you can experience it. Now the problem becomes what do you do when we're talking about does universal healthcare work and the complexity is so great that it is not possible for any finite being to meet all of the conditions to know what what is actually the case and therefore how their value should be organized and it's on that same gradient but you know I was talking earlier it's not so much that the truth is vertical and we're horizontal and can't get the truth it's on the same gradient and the way you advance on that gradient is you meet higher and higher conditions or different conditions to get more truth but what do you do when you get a world that's so complex that some of the conditions cannot be met or may not be met or theoretically cannot be met by human beings then you get a conflict of mind because you have a mind that cannot organize what values it should operate according to and yet nevertheless must operate according to some values uh because you're a political system so you get a conflict of mind so you get an existential tension and that's one example in the book and the whole series goes through a bunch of different conflict of mind situations so i think it's just really important and for me that is the mistake of of deconstruction is say well they're they're conflating conditionality with unknowability they're saying if it's conditional you can't know it that's not the case you can know it it's just not you can't know it instantly there are certain conditions you have to meet ah but who's the group of people what is the field that is supposed to teach you just that that they that you have to read certain things you have to learn certain things in order philosophy like philosophy's whole thing is like well you have to meet certain conditions apprenticeship you know there's this role of apprenticeship this sort of learning sort of bringing yourself up you're you're not going to understand how you can be a good husband unless you meet certain conditions of understanding that will make you look at situations in a certain way that you're not going to contribute to the conflict you're not going to be a good political person you know a, a participant in the polit in the politica uh the polis um unless you meet certain conditions so what's been very bad i think is the association of truth with relativism as opposed to truth with conditionality and just like you said we need to say truth is conditional and values are relative 
That's the key. It's not that truth is relative and values are an expression of that relativity. It's that truth is conditional and values are relative. Yeah. And that sort of, you know, leads us into this world of um, internally consistent systems and yes. narratives and the the methods by which we find out which ones are internally consistent or not and keeps us away from the sort of deconstruction that tells us that um shakespeare is a recipe book you know um, <laughs> but basically this is this is kind of coming to what you're really advocating for here and i think i think um you call it epistemic humility yes and towards the end of the essay you say um epistemic humility is the right place to accept our limitations stop and be present the point of thinking must be be for us to find a spot we can rest from our labors and actually rest but where that point is might be hundreds if not thousands of miles down the road so the the only word i could sort of put on it i'll put it in a box a little bit is it seems like you're advocating for some sort of quietism here and i'm not sure if you would accept that definition or what you think about that no, quietism is quite interesting. There is definitely a certain idea that quietism is correct in that philosophy that, that is just an extension of the enlightenment dream that's going to give you to the single system is erroneous. You know, that, you know, that that's that's no good. But what you could go too far is if you say that philosophy is merely therapeutic. You know, I think they talk about that, you know, that it's merely that's a key word. Philosophy absolutely helps you not be a crazy person. <laughs> you know, philosophy absolutely helps you not be one of the nutsy political people who's dressed in a buffalo costume going into the Capitol. Mm. Uh, not one of our greatest moments over here in the States. Uh, but, you know, that philosophy will help you do that because if you have epistemic humility, you, you, you step back. You don't have this. Philosophy helps you not have this existential anxiety to the, to the point where you're thinking the world's going to end if you don't do something and so on and so forth. You become much more humble. And maybe it is the case that if you don't do X, the world will end. But the philosopher is not going to let their emotions push them into that. They're going to have a really, really deep reflection. But of course, what does that look like? And that's where you get into the map is indestructible in, in, in the, red of the, book, the rest of the book. Um, the, so, so there's something very true about the idea that philosophy has a therapeutic dimension. But it's very erroneous, I think, to say that it's merely therapeutic or it's merely uh, in the area of just kind of calming you down because you are, in fact, philosophy does have the ability to help you formulate the right questions. It does have the ability to help you formulate the right way to approach situations. And there are problems that can be solved. You can perhaps there there is such things like the problem of you and say in your relationship, you're you're always missing. You know, Chekhov said that. The key to understanding a marriage is to understand that everyone is always misunderstanding one another. I love that. The Russians are so great. And so like you literally could use philosophical reasoning to understand, oh, wait, I think that I'm being loving whenever I fix um, whenever I fix food. But her love language is actually just talking to one another. And I don't really talk a lot. So that's why she doesn't be like, I love her very much because I think fixing food loves her when really for her, her love language is speaking. You could literally use philosophical reasoning and working in different frameworks and different things to arrive at that conclusion. And therefore you would have less drama in your life. You could rest more in your relationship as opposed to it be um, more of a, a drama filled thing. So the whole reason you're going to do philosophy or think is precisely because you are trying to make things better. You are trying to solve and have more optimal situations. But if we go back to that gradient, the further you get into the level of complexity, and you're, you always have to accept that there are some things so far down that gradient that you can't completely resolve or that you can't necessarily avoid a conflict of mind situation. But it would be erroneous to say that therefore your life must be constituted by only 
conflict of mind situations. So I would say that quietism, the more complex the entity, the more the more quietism applies, I guess, in a sense, like kind of the definite, like if the more that philosophy is just kind of in the, the space of making you live with these super complex problems that you can't figure out, but you also don't join a fascist regime in order to tear down the system. But as you become towards something that you, in your daily common life, and your experience can have, philosophy can in fact help you resolve situations and, and contribute to rest. So I don't want to go to the place where philosophy is merely therapeutic, but I also don't want to go to the place where I deny the therapeutic role of philosophy. And I also don't want to go to the place where I say all problems can only be managed, um, that some can be solved and philosophy can very much help you solve those problems and live a better life. But, but here's of course the problem. You actually need philosophy to tell which problems can be solved and which ones can only be managed, right? So if you don't have philosophical skill, then you end up in this life where it's all random. Like this is what ends up happening. And this is where I think quietism doesn't, uh, as I understand it, 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 it depends on what, you know, I guess what the neo-pragmatists would be quietists and different, it depends on what school of quietism we're talking about. Um, without philosophy, like everything is like chaos. You can't tell what problems have solutions, which ones can only be managed. You can't tell which, which values are suggesting which truths and which truths sort of organized to which values. Like it becomes very much just, um, uh, it's, well, it's just a, mess. You can't organize anything without philosophy. Um, I feel like quietism doesn't put enough, it doesn't suggest enough of the organizational ability of philosophy to organize your life, to figure out, to manage situations. Um, and it also does not give enough stock to the ability of philosophical reasoning to actually help you figure out how to live a better life. It does, in fact, contribute to you living the good life. But if you think philosophy is going to be able to solve neoliberalism, like, or you can sit here without relying on authority, right? Like, or something like that in your own vacuum, then you might be going a little far. Uh, so you end up here then getting a very, in the way that we're thinking, you get a very, um, the role of philosophy becomes very contingent on system size, like, or like the size of the information system that is, that is being described. Um, but then of course, even if it's very far down the gradient, you still have to make decisions about these things. You still have to decide if you're going to support universal healthcare, affirmative action, you know, the COVID, whatever you want to name. So you still have to make decisions about that. But at least, at least, and, and the book will hopefully go into what you do as you move to these more complicated systems. Um, but at least knowing that there is an essential limit to rationality and inevitable conflict of mind situations, that of itself does have a therapeutic role, right? That does go, oh, well, this is a conflict of mind. I have a word for it. I have a phrase for it. I know what's going on. This is, this, it's not that I'm being irrational. Like if you don't have conflict of mind as a category in your thinking, when you encounter one, you're going to conclude, I'm just stupid. I'm just irrational. There's going to be, but if instead you go, no, 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 there's actually essential limits to what finitude and rationality can accomplish, then that, that makes you more easy with it. So in that sense, quietism applies because there's a therapeutic element when you get to those more complex levels. Um, and I'm also not saying that we can't figure out affirmative action. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying that you have to be, you again, you have to go issue by issue. Maybe you can figure out affirmative action, but you can't figure out the Patriot Act. Maybe you can figure out universal healthcare, but you can't figure out something else. You have to go line by line by line by line. But if you encounter a conflict of mind situation by having the category that will help you not like flip out over it or enter into existential, uh, you know, turmoil. I think this is where I have such an absolute um, system as quietism, I think it is really it's you know putting a normative stance on what the philosophical process should produce 
mm. sort of implies that that means there's certain ways the philosophical process should be ran mm. that you know certain dangerous parts of possibility are precluded and i think that sounds a bit too much like forbidden knowledge for me but i was just trying to work out you're obviously you're not trying to box yourself into quietism here but it sounds like you're saying the philosophical process is congruent to the sorts of thing quietism wants to produce is that fair? sure yeah that, that's fair do you know, you know i always philosophical process can produce that are actually something we would not want or the, the, so that such that where there are dangerous philosophical truths we can discover i want to know a bit more about what you think about that no, no, no. Quietism, like, I am definitely in that school of thought. Absolutely. It's the, the issue, you, you know, quietism just means different things to different people, you know, and, and different things. But but quietism in regard, there is, there absolutely is an epistemic humility to quietism. There absolutely is a sort of understanding that philosophy does, in fact, play a role and is trying to niche out that role. Um, I, I would hesitate, though, um, to fall into the camps of quietism that actually are, are suggesting that science is the only way we get to true knowledge. Because that, I think we, I feel that a little bit in Richard Rory, even though I like Richard Rory quite a bit. In the same way, like I actually, as much as I've been bashing Derrida, I actually greatly prefer Derrida to the average deconstructionist. Like I feel like Derrida is quite nuanced. He's quite wise. You know, he kind of, he's able to navigate things, even though I do think his massive mistake is conflating all metaphysics with a metaphysics of the gap. There are metaphysics of apprehension. What I mean by that is an extensive topic. I've been talking with Jockin and Ravier and different people. But other than that mistake, which unfortunately is extremely con consequential, uh, Derrida is pretty great. I actually like him quite a bit. The same goes with a lot of like Wittgenstein. I guess he's associated with quietism. And so, you know, he, when he says the limits of my language are the limits of my world, Wittgenstein knows darn well that that doesn't mean that there aren't things beyond the limits of my language. He, he loved the Christian mystics. He was very interested in mystical knowledge and different things like that. It's kind of weird, right? Yet you hear the phrase, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. And you assume that therefore, you know, if you can't speak about it, it, it doesn't exist. You know, he says what that, you know, what you can't speak, you must fall silent. He was not saying, he was not saying that the things you are silent about therefore don't exist. He's saying that we can't talk about them because he also loved Kierkegaard, which is which is quite funny. So you have one interpretation of Wittgenstein that goes in the positivist direction that says, OK, philosophy, you know, science, you know, science can be about the stuff we can talk about. So let's use scientific methods. And philosophy is just kind of helping us live with, you know, the feeling that there are things, be, you know, in the silence. But, you know, it, that's it. It's more of a therapeutic sort of living with that. Like that would be the quietism, which I think is more of a popular quietism than actually the quietism of the thinkers themselves. Even Richard Wardery, like the neo-pragmatists, when they say, you know, capital T truth is not something we can't know. Richard Wardery is not saying that capital T truth therefore does not exist. He's just saying we can't know it. And therefore, the functional philosophy must ultimately be in service of pragmatism. And I actually really do think that neo-pragmatism is quite useful as a sort of test of philosophical ideas. So that would be what I could say is like a, a popular take on quietism that then ends up serving the Enlightenment project, which I'm afraid happens on a popular level, I would be against. But quietism as something that more Wittgenstein is pointing at, or even the neo-pragmatists at, the, neo at their best are pointing at, I would say I would support. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's a bit of a tangential question. I'm, I'm not very well, too read, well read on um, Derrida, but I'm just wondering if you would say that, um, ironically, if deconstruction itself, or perhaps just the work of Derrida, maybe that instantiates its own internally consistent system. Would you agree with that? Is that a fair interpretation? 
Um, deconstruction, if you assume the premises of the Enlightenment, the axioms of the Enlightenment, if you will, uh, is in fact internally consistent. The problem is that those axioms are incorrect. This is, this is also why philosophical skill becomes necessary, because the problem of internally consistent systems becomes a problem of axioms, like the fundamental basis of reality. How in the world do you determine the correct axioms by which to operate to? Because it must be a different intellectual act than just simply concluding what is rational, right? So a way to, to put this, the example I always give, um, because the whole name of the trilogy is the true isn't the rational. The true isn't the rational. And what it's trying to say is there's a different category. So if I think it is true that it is going to rain today, it becomes rational to bring an umbrella. But let's say it doesn't rain. Was I irrational? No, no, no. I was very rational relative to what I thought was true. I was just wrong. It is possible to be rational and wrong. The dream of the Enlightenment is that you cannot be rational and wrong. Okay, but it actually is possible. The dream of the Enlightenment, to put it very simplistically, is that truth equals rationality, that they are the same thing, that there is a correspondence co that co I guess the terms are co co coherence and correspondence always match. You know, I guess it's the epistemological way. What I'm arguing is the truth isn't the rational, that correspondence and coherence are different categories, that you can that you can have complete coherence and not have correspondence. Right. And yet you're necessarily infinitude trapped in systems of coherence out of, from which you have to guess or determine somehow blindly groping in the dark. It's not totally like don't take those metaphors too strongly. Correspondence from within coherence, you have to determine correspondence. How in the world do you do that? Because the coherence is filtering your experience, filtering what you see, filtering what constitutes evidence to you to make you think that something corresponds that may simply be a result of an impressence of the coherence of your internally consistent system. Oh my gosh, everything gets way more difficult, right? And suddenly when you put it that way, for me, it becomes so obvious that simplistic epistemology or pure positivism is not going to be enough. And if it's not enough, well, then philosophy is unescapable. Like you can't get rid of it. It's like the revenge, you know, Cadell last talks about the revenge of philosophy. It's like, it's coming back. We can't get rid of it. And pluralism has basically proven to us because of all the internally consistent systems that are arising that you must, you must deal uh, with philosophical questions. And, and yes, deconstruction ultimately um, participates in um, consistently with the, with the axioms and the deconstruction of deconstruction would be the, to, to break apart the true and the rational, to say that that axiom is incorrect. Because I'm also not saying that all axioms are equal. This is where it gets hard. Like I'm not saying that all axioms are equal, uh, but they're just really freaking difficult to sort of go through and determine what's what. It actually ultimately, like once you take axioms seriously, you can't be a specialist. Like academic specialists, you have to like be very knowledgeable about a lot of fields, like economic, sociology, history, literature. You have to go into lots of things because axioms are underneath systems. And so if you're a specialist, you're kind of stuck in the system and you can't get to the axioms. And this is all very general, but just take my word. So you need to almost be a, a generalist, like Paul Popper talks about, where you go outside and maybe you can get underneath and start glimpsing the axioms. But in academia today, everyone's supposed to be a specialist, which don't get me wrong. Uh, I like what Dietrich Mikowski says. He says, you know, I'm specialized in something, but read widely. You know, he's an economist. So he's like, be, you know, specialize in economics, but also read literature you know, read history, read all these other things, or otherwise your economic theory is probably going to suck, is basically what he's saying. So I think the problem of axioms really brings to the forefront, sure, specialize, that's not bad, you want to be very knowledgeable about something, but also 
you're, you're, you need to be able to read widely to, to get around systems or, or you're going to be trapped. Um, specialization is all you need in a world where the true is the rational. But, but in a world where the true isn't the rational, you need both specialization and generalization. But that's so much harder, man, because like, when can we stop reading? Like, and then you kind of kill status because it's easier to be a specialist in like inflation. But when you start talking about like a generalist, how do you get status? How do you get tenure? How do you get an identity? Like everything becomes much more uh, difficult, right? You don't fit into a system where you can get your, uh, your rewards and praise and different. So it kills the ego. Like you, you start getting into psychoanalytically, it kills the ego. It's hard to know where you fit in. But of course, what is like, if you think about it, like every single PhD, the P in PhD means philosophy. Like philosophy can be about everything. We've talked about this, right? It's like about everything. So again, philosophical skill gets you habituated to being a generalist. It gets you habituated into like not being able to locate your identity in a single field of knowledge or to locate your identity in certainty. There's a certain emotional habituation that the philosophical way of life creates. Uh, but then if you mix the philosophical way of life with the enlightenment dream, then you get a force of terror. And that's like the deconstruction, David Hume, and we can talk about that too. So there's a balance there, but it's also a necessary risk in order to live with and deal with the problem of the true isn't the rational. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a lot deeper than my pop culture understanding of the problem of deconstruction there, that's for sure. Um, so I, I think I'll just, uh, one final kind of quote with a, with a question, because I think it wraps up what we've spoken about and also the point of this chapter really nicely and definitely gives a sort of preview into the rest of the book, which I would implore people to pick up and read here if they've oh, been listening this far. Um, so if there is ultimately no way to determine truth, then there is ultimately no way to reassure our values won't turn against us and or eat themselves. And we are caught in a broken reality. Without the ability to recognize truth, overconfident, we will pave the way to destruction with honesty, responsibility, genius, justice, freedom, love, and the like. The road to hell is not paved with good intentions. The road to hell is paved with goods. So I thought that was like a really powerful close to that chapter. Um, and I, I suppose this is kind of now leading into the fact that the values we were talking about that are relative to the truth, but not completely relative, um, can be equally valid, but we have to make sure we have the right processes to bring us to those values that won't bring us to the proverbial hell. Um, I'm not sure if you had any closing statements on that, but it's a uh, an apt warning for anyone who thinks philosophy isn't important. Absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate this. All right, and this is this has been delightful. I really appreciate your time. And thank you for reading the sections. That, that's that's really wonderful. And uh, no, it, it hopefully the truth organizes values frames quite clearly why this is not an optional uh, issue, like why, why philosophy is not optional, why thinking is not optional. Basically, what happens today is most people say, I feel like the Patriot Act increases freedom, therefore it does increase freedom. They let their values pick their truths for, for them. Well, what if the Patriot Act isn't actually stopping any terrorism? It's just being used on U.S. citizens to uh, stop them from opposing the government. Ah, then the thing that you think supports freedom actually destroys freedom, right? So, you know, and you go on. If, if it's true, you know, people argue that affirmative action actually hurts minorities because it mismatches them with universities, right? Well, if that's true, then the fact you say, well, I support affirmative action because it increases equality. Well, if actually affirmative action hurts equality, ah, that'd be a problem. 
But then again, maybe the Patriot Act does stop terrorists. Maybe affirmative action does help minorities. It doesn't cause the mismatch that people talking about. It's all about the truth. It's all about determining truth in order to figure out what value you are exercising. You know, you don't want to be in a situation where you think you're helping freedom as you hurt freedom. You don't want to be in a situation where you think you're helping um, social justice as you're hurting social justice, right? Well, if you don't take the problem of the truth organizes value seriously, then the likelihood of you making that mistake is way, way higher. But if you understand that the truth is fundamental to the organizing of the values, then what you focus on changes. Your orientation changes. And it becomes really, really clear to you that philosophy is necessary because to close, one of the big things that philosophy does is it helps you avoid irony. Supporting the Patriot Act in the name of freedom and losing freedom is ironic because irony is when X does Y for Z and Y is why X doesn't get Z. You know, that's irony at its depth, right? Irony is everywhere in the human condition. We are full to the brim of irony. We do things that we think will increase equality and that causes inequality. We do things that are going to increase justice and freedom and all that. And those are what cause it to go away. And as hopefully all of the work that we do makes clear, my wife and I, um, where there is not philosophy, irony wins the day. And a world of which is ironic is a world that will indeed find itself on a road paved with goods to hell. So philosophy is how we avoid irony. And if we do not avoid irony, well, then the future isn't that bright. So hopefully we begin to realize the utter necessity of the role of philosophy in order to avoid these ironies. Yeah. I suppose that leads us into the suggestion that um, that's probably why tragedy is such an important literary device, because we see so much of ourselves in its irony, right? Um, I am a strong believer that literature is the case studies of philosophy. <laughs> right, right, right. I think I would agree with you there. So, yeah, we've been talking about um, Conflict of Mind today, which is um, your book written with your wife. Um, really, yeah, we've talked about just, just the first chapter today, and there's so, been so much content just to get off of there. So if you, if you want a heavy, in a good way, read, I would suggest picking this one up. Um, you mentioned it was part of a trilogy, so I don't know if they, you want to talk about what we have to look forward to, or maybe if there's something else you want to plug today. I'll tell you what, Mr. Bob. Well, like I said, I really appreciate it. All the books are done. It's just there's never enough time in the, the day to edit everything. Now, is there, you know, we, the next one is called Reconstructing A is A, which is going to be um, basically the, the question of that is why is irony possible? Like why, why is our natural disposition ironic in the way I described? And that's going to get into our ontological nature and, uh, and different things like that, which is also going to tie into the correct, um, if indeed truth organizes values, then ontology organizes epistemology. And so determining ontology, determining the nature of being is also going to have a big impact on the way we do epistemology and that we do thinking. So it it focuses on that. Um, And then the last, the third one is called the map is indestructible, which is really focusing on the problem of internally consistent systems, ideology, as we're describing. Two other books that are in concert with this is Belonging Again, which is kind of, you know, we were describing the politics and the sociology that all of this is manifesting through. Belonging Again is about that, kind of the sociological consequences of all this. And the, the, the fifth one called The Fate of Beauty uh, then actually wants to make a very strong argument for um, the role of aesthetics 
in determining truth. You know how I said rationality is here and then you have truth. So how do you deal with the problem of axioms? How do you deal with the problem of truth? So hopefully that book is going to argue for an aesthetic epistemology and the role of aesthetics and beauty, because I feel like aesthetics have been unfortunately um, forsaken, overlooked in a lot of philosophical thinking today. So there's kind of those books and then all of the fiction, you know, we do a bunch of like short stories and novels and, and different things like that. Uh, so, so that's kind of the arc, whether it all gets done or I drank too much coffee and my heart explodes before then, I'm not sure, but you know, we'll, we'll find out. Yeah. I'll be sure to include some links um, in the description. Thank you. Um, I've got something now, which I call a reverse icebreaker, which is um, something really um, a morbid question to sort of um, wrap up a discussion because I think these podcasts and discussions are often, you know, don't have enough to throw you off. So my question for you <laughs> is that if you were on death row and you had to choose your last meal, what would that meal be? Uh, it would be, it would prop, that's really hilarious. Um, my wife's squash casserole. So, you know, I actually had that one. So maybe I need to go tell her on I'm on death row so I can get the squash casserole. Let me drink a little more strong coffee to get some of that. My heart will explode and then I can get the, the squash casserole. Well, so squash casserole. You can kind of drink for the confidence, but yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, that and my grandfather and I spent basically every summer um, evening on the porch eating watermelon. So I can live off watermelon and squash casserole. So, I'll, you know, either one of those would be fine. Good to know. Good to know. All right. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you, Mr. Barnes. I appreciate it very much. Thank you.